Um, th- this morning I'm going to be preaching from Genesis 7, uh, 1 to 24, but I'll, I'll start back from the, be- the beginning of, uh, of the account of Noah in Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set a door in the ark on its side. Make it with lower and second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come come into it to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten to store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male, the female, a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps in the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. 
and all flesh that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, the story that is, is so well known to so many and, and so misunderstood by so many. Lord, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would gain a, a deeper and, and a more accurate understanding of, of what the events that took place on, on that day, thousands of years ago, and, and, but more importantly, the implication of those events for us today. And Lord, the implication for the future of the world. For our future. Lord, we pray that, that you would help us to understand correctly what your word says and what your word means for your glory and for the building of your church. Amen. It was a day that started out like any other. People were eating and drinking and marrying. They had no idea what was coming. They were carrying on as though they would live forever. But they wouldn't. By the end of that day, every man and woman and child on the planet would be dead, apart from eight souls safely aboard the ark. It was the end of the world as they knew it. In modern history, some people have a, a, a preoccupation with the end of the world, while many others and many more have ignored it altogether. Some go far, so far as to, to predict a date, ignoring the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses cult, predicted uh, night, uh, night, sorry, 1874 as the end of the world, and and the, the Jehovah's Witnesses cult went on to predict again 1941 and, and again 1975. Herbert Armstrong predicted 1936. He changed his, his theory and his prediction three times. In 1987, Michael Stipe of the pop band R.E.M. sang, It's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. Nostradamus predicted 1999. All kinds of people predicted January 1st, 2000 because of fear of Y2K. Harold Camping predicted the end of the world in October 2011. He got it wrong six times. The Mayan calendar predicted December 21st, 2112. They were all wrong. But let me go on record that I am predicting July 15th, 2018 as the end of the world cup <laughs> but I could be wrong I could be wrong the world could end before the end of the World Cup in fact it could end today if today were the end of the world I highly doubt that Michael Stipe of REM would feel fine would you feel fine if it were the end of the world as you know it 
What would your eternal destiny be? We're looking at the third Toledot in Genesis, the third section, the generations of Noah, that continues on to the end of Genesis 9 and focuses on Noah and his progeny. Last week we saw how this section is really a continuation of the contrast between the seed of promise and the, the seed of rejection of that promise, between the, the seed of the woman and between the, between the seed of the serpent, between those who have been chosen by God and, and those who have rejected Him. Again, in this passage, we see how the seed of promise is threatened by human sinfulness as, as sin has become all-consuming and all-encompassing, corrupting the entire earth. And so in this passage, God's punishment rises to a global scale as he washes sin from the face of the earth. And while his grace is now focused on one man, and his family. Only Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and only Noah is said to be blameless in his generation. This is the starkest of contrasts. Noah's righteous character on the one hand versus the earth's corruption. The Noahic covenant on the one hand versus the Lord's condemnation. This morning we're going to see a continuing contrast with the Lord's call versus the flood's catastrophe. It's a contrast between what God does for Noah and the rest of the passengers on the ark versus what he does to the rest of the planet. In 7.1, the Lord speaks again to Noah. Notice that, that throughout this narrative, we see Moses shifting back and forth between God and the Lord, between Elohim and Yahweh between the, the, the name that focuses on him as all-powerful and the name that, that focuses on him as eternally faithful. The, these two names are not used because of some hypothetical E source or J source that, that wrote it at different times and then a redactor put it all together. This was written by Moses thousands of, of years ago. And when Moses uses the different names for God, he has a theological purpose. The Lord, Yahweh, is a covenant-keeping God. And he bids Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. This is a divine invitation. It is not just a weak plea. It is a divine call. It is a divine command. It's a divine summons to come into the ark and be saved. Why does the Lord call Noah? Because we, we read in this verse, because you, I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now this does not mean, as we discussed last week, that Noah earned the Lord's favor by his righteousness. And if you remember, as I talked to the kids just a few moments ago, if you look back at verse 6-8, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And only then in verse 9 do we see Noah was a righteous man. So Noah's righteousness was the result of God's favor. It was the evidence of the Lord's favor, not the basis of the Lord's favor. Victor Hamilton explains, the point made by 7.1 is that the explanation for Noah's righteousness is not merit, but rather the purpose of Yahweh. 
In other words, Yahweh has chosen Noah to be righteous and therefore the chosen vessel, the one through whom humanity would be preserved. Nonetheless, this, this is a, con a commendation of Noah's character. Noah was righteous. He was walking in righteousness because of the Lord's work in his heart. He was the only righteous man left. His father Lamech would have died five years earlier. His grandfather Methuselah had probably just died. 2 Peter 2.5 refers to Noah as a herald of righteousness. Not only was he righteous himself, but he also preached righteousness. Presumably part of his message was, was a warning of the coming judgment. And his relatives were the only ones who listened. His stand for righteousness very likely had a, had a positive influence on his family, even if, as we're going to see uh, in, in next week, that they weren't all truly followers of God. But at this point, they were the only ones who listened, and they were called into the ark with Noah. So it's not just Noah and his family that benefits. Verses 2 and 3, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. This is added detail to the instructions of 6, 18 and following. Now, it's interesting that those terms are used, clean and unclean, because we don't have detailed instructions about, about, about what clean and unclean means until Leviticus. But, but Noah obviously understood what was meant here and was able to obey. He would have understood what clean and unclean meant. So clean animals like sheep and goats and bulls were, were needed because they were used for sacrifices and, and also because after the flood they will become food. This was about, so this was about uh, food and the sacrificial system, but it was also about the preservation of species. See the command again and repeated in verses 8 and 9. It's, it's to emphasize the Lord's providential protection through the flood. The Lord cared about the future of the environment. But unlike Russell Crowe's blockbuster lie, Noah, God did not send the flood because humans were destroying the environment. He sent it because they were destroying the earth with their sin. They had corrupted it. They had corrupted it. This is a, a time of unprecedented evil on the earth. The Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, 6.5. The earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt because all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, 7 verses 11 and 12. But the Lord is holy. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. The Lord must punish sin. He had said to, to Noah, or he said rather in 6.3 that in 120 years man would be wiped out. He had warned Noah in 6.13 that, that he was going to do this. He was going to send the flood. And then he gives one final warning. Four, the Lord says in, in 7.4 In seven days I will send rain on the earth Forty days and forty nights, and everything that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So now the time had come. Don't delay. Noah doesn't. 
He, he does all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, he shows his obedience. And so he and his family and the animals went into the ark. We're told in verse 6 that, that at this time, Noah was 600 years old. He and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark. Verse 7, 1 Peter 3.20 tells us, tells us it was eight people. The manifest is, is given in verses 8 and 9 of clean animals and of animals that, that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female. And we don't know exactly how it happened, but somehow the Lord led all of those animals to the ark. And yet again, Noah did what was commanded and brought the animals into the ark. Now, you might be wondering how so many animals could fit on board the ark. Skeptics say that the number would have been over two million. But this shows real ignorance of the facts. There would not have been, would not have been nearly that many animals aboard the ark. The classification that, that's given here is, is beasts, livestock, birds, and creeping things. Ernst Meyer, a renowned American taxonomist and also an evolutionist estimates that there are about 17,600 species of mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians on the earth today. Only 17,600 species of these vertebrate animals. But many amphibians could have survived the flood and so wouldn't have needed to be on the ark. But even if we were to include amphibians, a male and female of each of the 17,600 species Mayer identified, plus the seven pairs of, of clean animals and the birds, and, and even accounting for animals that are now extinct, we're still talking about less than 40,000 individuals. Now, that number's a lot more manageable to, to fit on the ark. But there were still far fewer animals than even that. Remember, not all species need be represented. We're not talking here about individual species, but kinds. Kinds. The, the biblical term kind is much broader than species. Wolves and coyotes and foxes and huskies and poodles and chihuahuas are, are one kind. They're a dog kind. They only would have needed to be one pair of, of the dog kind on the ark. Speciation or the, the, the major changes into all of those forms that, that we see today would have, would have taken place through natural selection. Likewise, it would have only been needed to be, be one pair of a bird of prey, including eagles and hawks and osprey and falcons, but we're told there's seven uh, of each of the types of birds, of kinds of birds. Only one pair of a bear kind. Only one pair of a gecko kind, and so on. As I mentioned to the kids, dinosaurs would have been on the ark as well. But, but contrary to, to what you read, there, there are only about 55 different kinds of dinosaurs. Creation Ministry International scientist Jonathan Sarfati estimates that on the basis of this, um, that, that given that the, the biblical classification of kinds, there's probably only about 16,000 animals on board the ark, and that would have accounted for, for everything that every animal that Noah was required to put on the ark. 
Given that the ark was, was 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and 45 feet high, the, the deck area would have been over 100,000 square feet. And the volume would have been over 1.5 million cubic feet. This volume is equivalent to, to over 340 semi-trailers. Each semi-trailer can, can carry 300 sheep. So then, if we do the math on that, it means that the ark would have been able to carry about 102,000 sheep-sized animals. But, but even if only one layer of the ark, even if the animals weren't stacked on each of the levels of the ark, the ark could still fit 19,000 sheep-sized animals. But we realize that, that many of the animals are actually much smaller than, than sheep size. Only a few are, are larger, and they would have likely been brought on board as juveniles. So there, there's, there's plenty of, of evidence that, that, that shows us for those who, who have a heart to, to believe it and who are, are not accepting what the, the world is, is, is telling us and the, and the world's presuppositions, you, you can see very clearly that, that there are, is en was enough room on the ark to, to house the different kinds of animals and their food. The people and the animals now on board, the seven days are up. And Noah had, had done what the Lord had told him to do, and the Lord now did what he said he was going to do. We're given again a very specific date in verse 11. The 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, the 17th day of the month, probably springtime, here, Robert Candlish from his commentary in Genesis. The quiet assurance of faith, chastened by solemn dread, an awful expectancy without. On the earth, there are mingled sentiments of wonder, contempt, and bitter triumph, sometimes a lurking fear. Again, a feeling of glad relief. Men have got rid at last of the preacher of righteousness. If we assume, as is not improbable, that during this very week, the aged Methuselah was taken from the evil to come, it might seem to be the very jubilee of unrestrict, unrestricted and unreproved lawlessness that now had arrived. True, it had been said, yet seven days and I'll bring the flood. But how can this be? The heaven is serene. The earth is smiling. All nature is gay and joyous. It's being, as some reckoned, the first breaking forth of spring. Now is the season of mirth, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and Noah, the gloomy censor of the world's harmless joys, where is he now? In a mire, a bass in a dungeon, buried alive, self-immolated as good as dead. At any rate, he's well out of the way. What a contrast, that awful week, that mysterious pause when the elements are gathering their strength for the sudden crash. And verse 11 describes a cataclysm. All the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Subterranean waters burst forth from, from, the, earth, from the ground and all over the globe the earth rocks and, and splits as water bursts forth. Likewise, the floodgates of the heavens are opened, are flung open, and the skies burst in the deluge of water. And there have been, have been major downpours at other times. In February 1969, in, in Darwin, 77 millimeters of rain fell in a half hour. That would be over 12 feet in a 24-hour period. In February 1992, don't laugh at the name, in Gunu Gunu, New South Wales, 175 
so 175 millimeters fell in a half hour. That would be 27 feet in a 24 hour period. But that's nothing like this rain. And this was no mere 24 hour period. This went on for, 20, for 40 days and 40 nights. And it was not just water from above, it was water from below. Never before and never since has there been a rain or a flood like this one. Death from above and death from below. This is an undoing of the creation work that God did in, in Genesis 1 when the Lord had separated the waters above from the waters below. Now he's gathered the waters. He's mixed them into a massive maelstrom. The land disappears underneath the waves. In verses 13 to 16, the picture shifts back to those on board the ark. Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and his sons' wives, and the animals are safe on board the ark in the midst of the chaos going on around them. They had done what God had commanded, and God had done what he said he would do. God had done what he promised, and he had protected them. Look at the end of verse 16. Do you see what happens? And, and do you see who does it? The Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Notice the name that's used again. Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, right after the, the author had used God or Elohim in, in the very same verse. Again, contrary to source theists who den, source theorists who deny the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, th there's a reason, there's a theological reason why Noah used these different names. Here, Herbert Leopold, God, the awe-inspiring ruler of all, Elohim, laid all these commandments upon Noah by virtue of his supreme authority. In the same breath, with the skillful use of the proper divine name, the author asserts that it was Yahweh, the always gracious and faithful, who closed the door after him. There's a theological purpose to the, to the author's use of these names. The, the door was, was closed to shut everyone outside out. And the door was closed to protect everyone who was on the inside to keep them in. There is no man overboard when God's protecting. This is the fatherly care of the Lord for his chosen ones in the midst of judgment. And against the, the, the rest of the inhabitants of the world, God has chosen these people to spare them, to protect them from the cataclysm. We're told again in, in verse 17 that the flood continues for 40 days. The waters continued to rise for that entire period until the ark floated on the surface and the waters prevailed over the face of the earth. Verse 18, the waters rose over the mountains, covering them to, uh, to an altitude, to a height of 15 cubits, or, or 22 and a half feet deep, verses 19 and 20. Now, some might, might, might wonder how mountains like Everest, that are over 29,000 feet high, could possibly have been covered. Well, if the, we need to realize that, that at the, in this day, if the earth was completely flat, that, well, sorry, not a flatter society. If there was, if it was smooth, that the water, the water level would would be at a height of of over two point six kilometers. 
So if, if there are no mountains or hills on the earth, the water would be 2.6 kilometers deep. But we know the earth was not completely flat at that, at that time, yet Everest and many of the highest mountains that exist today were formed after the flood. They were formed after the flood. Evolutionists hold to uniformitarian uniformitarian presuppositions. In, in other words, they, they conclude that natural laws and processes continued from the beginning of, of time until, until, this, until this time. That, that these natural laws and processes as, as we observe them are, are uniform, that there's no changes to them. They have the same evidence that we have, but they draw completely different conclusions based on their presuppositions because their presuppositions are against the Word of God. But we, because we, we interpret what we see through the Word of God, we see through creation, and we, see, we interpret it in light of God's Word, and we, we're informed about it through what we read in God's Word. The biblical evidence is, is not for a uniformitarian process, but for catastrophism, for catastrophe, for the flood. The face of the earth was radically altered by the flood. Just look in your Bible for a moment, please, at, at Psalm 104, verses, uh, verses 6 to 9. 104, verses 6 to 9. We'll go back to 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. Hear this. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. So they might not again cover the earth. So the, the processes of, of that amount of water breaking forth over the face of the earth caused the face of the earth to be radically altered. To, to look completely different than it, does, than, it, than it did before the flood. But the geological evidence also shows that Everest was thrust up. And if you realize this, but on the summit of Everest, researchers have found marine livestone and fossilized crinoids, they're a relative of, of sea stars. Flat layers of marine invertebrates were pushed up at an angle when the modern mountains were formed. It was formed after the flood. And, and just for a moment while I'm talking about the fossil record, Friends, the fossil record is not a record of a series of long ages, but a sequence of burial. It's a sequence of burial. As the fountains of the great deep burst forth, bottom-dwelling marine life would have been buried first. Just makes sense. So they're at the bottom. And not surprisingly, then we have many fish. And then amphibians. And then, and then the reptiles and the, the, the land-dwelling animals on top of them. So, so it's just, this is not a, a, a record of the, of, the, of the dates. It's a record of the order of burial. Of burial. The, the, while the, many aquatic creatures would have survived the flood, it was different for the land animals. The, 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 there was no mountain that was high enough for them to escape the onslaught of water. This was no local flood. If it was a local flood, Noah could have sought higher ground. The animals, at least the birds, would have sought higher ground. But there was no higher ground. It was all under water. But let's look at the repetition of, of the universal language in verses 19 to 23. 
all the high mountains, under the whole heaven, all flesh died, all swarming creatures, all mankind, everything on dry land, every living thing died. This was a global flood. There was nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, and most of the population of the earth would have been wiped out in the first few minutes. But a few would be left to, to tread water or to cling to debris till their strength ebbs and they sink under the waves. Humanity had corrupted the earth with sin, and so God uses the earth to destroy them, just as he had said in Genesis 6.13. Humanity had increased over the whole earth and their sin with it. Now the waters increased to drown them and it. God is holy. God is holy, and he must punish sin. Many people hear a story like this and they think, how could, how could the loving God do that? How could God kill all of these people? When, when people, and, and I understand the, the, the desire to, to resort to, to that kind of thinking, but we need to understand who God is. The, the, the difficult thing to understand, if we understand the holiness of God, is why God should save anyone. When we understand how great and how infinitely holy God is and how sinful humanity is, we, and, and even ourselves, we begin to understand why, why would God save anyone, let alone why would God save me? Because God is holy, but God is also gracious and merciful and willing to save. Now the scene shifts back again to inside the ark at the end of verse 23. Only Noah is left and those who are with him in the ark. They were the only ones left. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The Lord chose Noah and through Noah saved his family as well. Many cultures around the world have, have stories about the flood. There, in fact, there's thousands of them. The Gilgamesh epic, the Atrahasis epic, even groups as geographically diverse as Australian Aboriginals and our own natives here in Canada have flood stories. And almost all of them include humanity being saved by an ark of some form. And quite often, the, the details are, are really remarkably similar. But like those children's books that I, I spoke of to the kids, they're missing the most important detail. They're missing the most important thing. They, they, might, get the, they might get some or even most of the, the facts uh, about the flood right. But they're missing the, the one to whom the flood pointed. They're missing the one to whom Noah pointed. Noah was a, a picture of Jesus. As, as the Lord chose to save humanity through one person. Humanity can only be saved through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than Noah. And Jesus Christ saves us from a fate infinitely worse than drowning in a flood. He saves us from the wrath of God by dying for the cross on, by dying on the cross for, for your sins, for my sins. 
by living the life that, that you could never live, that I could never live. This is the most important detail of, of the, the flood story. It's who it points to. It's about Jesus. It, it points to the salvation that, that we can have from the coming destruction of the world. Jesus Christ himself, we saw this in, in, in Matthew 24, likens the earth in the time before the flood to the time of, before the, the oncoming wrath of God. Before he will pour out his wrath, the earth is not, we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, the earth will never be flooded again. When it starts to rain, I, I don't try to climb up on the roof of my house or, or go up the mountains. God has promised that he's not going to destroy the world again by water, but he's going to destroy it again with fire. He's going to destroy it with fire. You can believe every detail about the flood, but if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be consumed in an immeasurably greater destruction. The destruction of the earth through the flood, it, it obviously points to, to the end. In, in Noah's days, we, we discussed earlier, people would have woken up as it was any other day, any other morning, gone, gone about their routine until that moment. Likewise, in Matthew 24, it's going to be the same on the day of Christ's return. People will be oblivious of what's coming, going about their daily business, blind to the horrors awaiting them. But imagine their terror, calling on the rocks and the hills to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. This is coming for all of those who have not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who are not born again, who are not, not turning from sin and, and putting their faith in Jesus and walking with Him. But like the inhabitants of the rest of the planet, are contrasted with Noah and his family. Like the Lord's wrath against the inhabitants of the world are contrasted with His care for Noah and his family. If you are in Christ... The Lord will care for you. We have an immeasurably greater hope than Noah had. We have a far greater understanding than Noah would have had. Noah would have, would have looked around at the wickedness around him, much greater than the wickedness we see today, and he would have been disturbed by it. Like many of, of you are disturbed by, by what is going on in the world around you. We look around and we see what's happening. Persecution and war and terrorist attacks and natural disasters and a wholesale departure from the Lord and His Word. And you might feel sometimes like you are one of the few left. But you will not be left alone. The Lord is faithful. The Lord will preserve you. The Lord will protect you. Look to Him and be saved. Look to Him and, and find hope. Look to Him and live in the time that God has chosen for you that you might reflect His, His light, that you might proclaim His gospel, the good news of salvation. Preach it to everyone who will hear. The Lord will save His elect. Let's pray together.
holy God. When we consider the wickedness that is going on around us, when we see the wickedness that, that too often comes out of our, of our own flesh, Lord, we, we cry out for deliverance and we say, How long, O Lord? Lord, we don't know when you are coming back, but we know that you will come back. Because you have promised, Lord Jesus, you have come back to take your people home to be with you forever. And you have come back to right every wrong and to bring down eternal and perfect judgment against those who have rejected you and will continue to reject you. Lord, I pray that you would cause us as, as your people who have been called out of darkness into your light, for those people who have been, been called from wickedness into righteousness, Lord, that you would help us to ha have a confidence that is in you and you alone, not in, in external circumstances, but in our eternal circumstances. And for those who are here who have, have not yet turned from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, Lord, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would cause them to see that Christ is glorious. That, that following Christ is, is worth infinitely more than anything this world could ever have to offer. Because we know that this world is going to burn. Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your elect at this moment for your glory and for the building of your church. Amen.